Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Paul Kopp about his new book, The Body Incantatory, Spells on the Ritual Imagination in Medieval Chinese Buddhism, published by Columbia University Press in 2014. This book focuses on Chinese interpretations and uses of two written dharani during the last few centuries of the first millennium. Based on extensive research on the material forms that these dharani took, Kopp departs from a tradition of scholarship that focuses on the, on the sonic quality and spoken uses of these spells, drawing our attention instead to how written and inscribed Dharani were used to adorn and anoint the body. A central theme is Kopp's assertion that the diffuse Dharani practices that appeared centuries prior to the flowering of a high esoteric Buddhism in the 8th century were not simply a crude precursor to the later development of a fully systematized esoteric Buddhism, but rather were a set of loosely related practices and ideas that continue to develop alongside esoteric Buddhism. Through rich descriptions of Dharani use and interpretation, and liberal use of Dunhuang materials, he shows that Dharani were ubiquitous in all sectors of Chinese Buddhism, before, during, and after the 8th century. In this way, Kopp challenges the teleological view of early Dharani-based practices as being but one stage leading to the eventual triumph of a comprehensive Chinese esoteric Buddhism. In addition, Kopp demonstrates how material Dharani practices were a product of both Chinese and Indic input. Drawing on archaeological evidence, he notes that the way in which Dharani were actually worn reflects Indian precedence, while on the other hand, Chinese textual records describe and prescribe the wearing of Dharani in terms borrowed from Chinese practices of wearing amulets, seals, medicines, and talismans. The book contains 32 illustrations of amulets, written Dharani, Dharani stamps, Dharani pillars, and funerary jars, to help the reader to better visualize and understand the material practices at the center of Kopp's work. This book will be of particular interest to those researching or wishing to learn more about the history of scholarship on Dharani, Chinese practices of wearing enchanted objects, Chinese interpretations and uses of Dharani, theories about the role of writing and inscription in religious practice, and Chinese Buddhist material culture. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Paul Kopp about his new book, The Body Incantatory, Spells and the Ritual Imagination in Medieval Chinese Buddhism, published by Columbia University Press in 2004, just uh, last month, in fact, in September. And this is part of the Shenyan series in Buddhist studies, Chinese Buddhist studies, rather. Paul Kopp is Associate Professor in Chinese Religion and Thought in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago, where he also teaches in the college and the Divinity School. Paul Kopp, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I was wondering if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, where you were born or grew up, how you came to the study of Buddhism and China, any important um, influences in your life, for example, mentors, academic advisors... Uh, sure. Uh, born and raised in uh, the mystical land of Connecticut. Mm. <laughs> um, it's different versions of how I got interested in it all. Uh, basically always was interested in China and in 
sort of broadly speaking, Chinese practices of self-cultivation, initially martial arts. I mean, I, I think when I was in elementary school many years ago, I was, me and some friends were kind of hooked on the show Kung Fu, the original one. Mm-hmm. Used to uh, talk about it at uh, recess, I think. But that's probably too long ago to have much direct influence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did practice martial arts for a long time, although I don't anymore, haven't for a long time. But in high school, that... Uh, was the shape of my interest in all of this. And <laughs> in college, um, you know, I still was doing that stuff, but I, I went to the University of Connecticut, and there was not too much to be had in uh, terms of classes on China or, or East Asia at all, or Buddhism, mm-hmm. as I recall. I studied a little bit of Chinese, but it didn't really, didn't really take. At that time, I was an English major and kind of uh, set in my mind on on being a professor of English and I wanted to study uh, the imagination in uh, William Blake and Wallace Stevens. That's kind of what uh, Hmm. I had my mindset on back then. But um, after college, I was kind of wandering around and doing various things. And I went and lived in a, I had what I had had a strong. Let me actually. I'm sorry. Let me back up. Middle of college, I was very uh, disaffected. I left, and I went and lived with some Buddhist monks in Massachusetts, hmm. Western Massachusetts, uh, Nipponzan Myohoji group. There, basically, Nichiren monks, uh, uh, peace activists, anti-nuclear activists, hmm. and I lived there for the better part of a year, really. Hmm. Um, and while I was there, I met some people who were involved with Zen and Vipassana meditation and went on some retreats, and that was kind of a growing interest mm-hmm. after uh, college and this sort of poking around for a while. Sure. I went and lived um, at a Zen center in the U.S., in upstate New York, for, for again, better part of a year, um, left, left that for various reasons, uh, went to Taiwan to study Chinese and to, at that time, kind of get back into the martial arts world. But Tai Chi Chuan was, was the interest at that point and mm-hmm. uh, Bagua Zhang and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was there, I started studying Chinese, as I said, and started studying classical Chinese. Mm-hmm. Got very kind of fell in love with classical Chinese mm-hmm. uh, and especially uh, Chinese poetry. I had a a tutor who was a scholar of uh, Bai Juyi, and so I was reading a lot of that. Hmm. Um, came back to the U.S., decided now instead of, now I wanted to do a PhD in this kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. I was really thinking Chinese literature at that point. Hmm. Um, went, got into a program, very luckily, because I you know, had a degree in English, and not mm-hmm. a very distinguished degree in English, I'll have to say, on, on several levels. But I could speak Chinese at this point, and so a, a professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, long story short, you know, accepted me into the program. And while I was working there, I, uh, you know, I decided I bet at this point I could, I bet I could read a Buddhist text. So I went and I had a vague idea of how to find these things, and so I pulled mm-hmm. down volume of the Taisho mm-hmm. Canon, and I started reading it, and and the rest is sort of rest is history, really. Oh, right. So, um, yeah. No, thank you for that. Um, so, how did you go from uh, classical Chinese literature there then um, 
to focusing specifically on medieval Chinese Buddhism, and yeah. then from there specifically on spells, and then yeah. specifically ones that have a kind of material or physical use. Right. Um, how indeed? Well, at, at UMass, uh, I ended up doing a, a, uh, an MA thesis on Buddhist miracle tales. Mm-hmm. Um, under Alvin Cohen, who was you know a great philologist, I think, and, uh, someone that no one really knows hmm. should be better known. And then, luckily, I got to work with Peter Gregory at Smith College mm-hmm. for a year. Had a great, uh, basically, just tutorial with him for a year, reading, of course, um, uh, text by Zhong Mi. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that collection of miracle tales, there was a story about a monk who was going to chant. It was a set of miracle tales concerning the Huayanjing, the Avatamsaka Sutra. Mm-hmm. And in this story, the monk is going to first washes his hands in order to prepare to handle the text and then chant it. And as he's washing his hands, a drop of water falls to the ground, as it will, and hits an ant. And it drowns the ant. But because the ant was drowned in water that was connected somehow to the Avatamsaka Sutra, the ant is immediately reborn in a pure land. Hmm. Um, and I just was completely fascinated by this story. I mean, it's just a small story in a small collection. Mm-hmm. really stayed in the back of my mind. And so when I got to Princeton, where I did my PhD, um, I was not sure what I was going to work on, but this idea, unbeknownst to me, really was sort of strong on the back burner or still firing on the back burner. Hmm. Uh, and so a friend of mine, a, a classmate, Ryan Ju, Bong Sok, he was going to work, or he was thinking about working on this Dharani text mm-hmm. on the, uh, the uh, Ushnishavijaya Dharani. Mm-hmm. It's various Chinese permutations and, you know, and, as I talk about in the book, famously, or it became famous uh, as something that one carves on pillars or on banners, mm-hmm. and then the dust or shadow off the banner or a breeze off the banner, etc. If that, after touching the banner, the, the pillar, then touches somebody else, then that person who is touched will have all the good effects that you know, one usually only gets by chanting Adonai or hearing Adonai chanted, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I was just, I thought, here it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of the same idea, at least I thought so. I guess I still think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of a, of a kind of spiritual contagion, if that's the right, uh, right. for it, right, of sound or idea or text into material substance and then from that into, into person. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that, it was that story. Mm. That's really why I ended up working. Huh. The, so, uh, yeah. Mm. So you really came at it more from the sort of uh, side of the materiality uh, or the, um, looking at uh, sort of enchanted substance side rather than um, approaching it first and foremost through um, intoned Dharani. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Completely. Or through esoteric Buddhism, which at the time I, you know, I had no I had no clue about, and I wasn't all that attracted to it. But mm-hmm. uh, it was, you know, it was really this 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 material efficacy. Sure. So 
In the preface, you explain two central goals of this book. And regarding the first of these, you note that while research on Dharani in China has focused largely on the ritual, philosophical, esoteric Buddhist systems that uh, became so prominent around the 8th century, uh, there existed an earlier Chinese Dharani tradition that preceded by some half uh, millennium this flowering of high esoteric Buddhism and the later spread of uh, Dharani deity cults. Uh, so, one, as you explain it, one goal of the book is to bring attention to this sort of uh, non-esoteric, pre-esoteric, if I can describe it that way, tradition, and to understand its place within the history of Chinese Buddhism. So, um, I mean, we'll talk about the specific Dharanis later, but can you first give our listeners an idea as to why this tradition has been ignored? I don't. Uh, that's. I'm not sure. It's an important question, I think, and it's you know something I draw attention to in in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, esoteric Buddhism, tantric Buddhism, is pretty amazing, right? And pretty all engulfing, mm-hmm. and it's a very uh, famous. Let's just put it that way, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it kind of, has has kind of you know sucked a lot of the oxygen available for for intra, in, in terms of the interest of, of spells right? uh-huh. this kind of and when you look because it's so prominent right and so attractive so mm-hmm. really beguiling i mean all this all, all that uh the earlier stuff and the as i try to point out in the book the ongoing earlier stuff right right and one of the first times i gave a paper on this on the book material i called it the later history of early Buddhist uh, incantation practice, or something like that. Hmm. So, but but why? I'm not. I'm not sure. It certainly seems to have done so. I mean, but then, as I try to point out in the book, people like Arthur Whaley mm-hmm. um, saw it right. And and in terms of the model I use in the book, I really borrow it. As far as I understand it, you know, pretty verbatim from uh, Ronald Davidson's picture of how esoteric Buddhism. Uh, arises in India, right? It's this kind of a synthesis, if I'm doing his ideas justice, of these earlier existing, uh, and at the time apparently quite popular, um, practices, techniques, etc. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so going on to the um, inscribed Dharani, uh, it seems to me that you argue that on the one hand, these Dharani, um, this is sort of a theoretical point in your uh, early on in your book, uh, it seems that you argue that on the one hand, inscribed Dharani, um, that is, material incantations, are not the exact same as magical speech, while on the other hand, neither are they simply the same as all magical objects. And you point out that in previous scholarship, magical objects have often been lumped together in the same category without a distinction being made between the differing ways in which uh, these different objects function. So it seems you want to avoid the mistake um, and uh, treat the material Dharani as both a type of magical object and as a type of spell. Yeah. Um, but this gets us into the introduction in which you provide a synopsis of the modern study of Buddhist uh, Dharani, noting that a scholarly interest in ritual, among other factors, has led scholars to focus on Dharani as a type of ritual speech and ignore written Dharani. And I should also point out for listeners who haven't yet read the book that the written spells you focus on in this book are not simply talismans, amulets, and charms that are first and foremost seen for their materiality, but rather written versions of 
incantations that were at least initially regarded primarily as oral in nature. So, um, so while many pre- uh, previous studies um, have focused on the sonic nature and character of Dodanian spells, you focus on how Dodanian spells are depicted, interpreted, and used, and also on the context in which they're used. So I was wondering if you could approach or address this particular aspect of your study, that is, how your approach departs from previous scholarly treatments of uh, Dharani. Yeah. Well, I love all that other work. Um, I hope I hope that's clear. Yes, no, no, certainly. <laughs> and actually what I'm doing these days is, as, uh, in, is in part still about Dharani, but in, in to the extent that it is, it's really about them as spoken, Oh, right. As spoken parts of ritual. Mm-hmm. But um, where to begin? I, I just, uh, let me put it this way. I mean, I just felt there was all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And literally stuff, amulets, pillars, uh, things in tombs, etc. that A, hadn't really been studied uh, to the extent that they deserve, certainly not by Western scholars. Mm-hmm. And that to, and that in order to do so required, you know, paying close attention to them, right, and, and mm-hmm. into their context, and not simply saying, oh, "Well, here we have a Buddhist incantation, a dharani, a mantra, whatever. Uh, we know what those are, right?" And mm-hmm. so we can simply say, "Well, here are just some carved versions, right?" It, it seemed pretty clear to me in the beginning, and especially given my interest in, you know, which, as I noted, was sort of rooted initially in, in these crazy ideas of uh, physical mm-hmm. um, transmission of uh, efficacy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, I just thought, you know, I'm going to pay close attention to the context, right? I'm just going to try to apply basic uh, methods of philology and archaeology to the extent that I can. I'm not being an archaeologist mm-hmm. uh, and history, and and just see what the material says. Right? If we mm-hmm. if we just try to attend to it. Um, that said, you know, as you pointed out, chapter. I'm sorry. The introduction of the book is in large part a sort of a summary of uh, of uh, at least part of the scholarship on spoken spells. Right? Because Dharamis. Are primarily spoken. Although the case of the Tswecho, the Mahapratisara, is, is interesting because the earliest versions we have of it in the scripture, they foreground the writing of it, right? Not the speaking of it. I see. You mean the actual sort of instructions in the text itself? Right. 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 I see. Um, and do you think you, you seem to suggest that part of this uh, sort of treat. Um, Part of this might have been uh, due to a scholarly interest in ritual in which the Durrani largely appears as a sort of a spoken utterance rather than a... Okay, um, well, let's uh, move on to chapter one then, in which... um, And in chapter one, you begin by noting that in or by the uh, 7th century, we see a new development in Dharani writing practices, whereby inscribed Dharani were thought to be powerful in and of themselves and did not have to be intoned in order to be efficacious. And uh, central to this chapter is a distinction you make between three understandings of Dharani during the medieval period. Um, And the first, Dharani as the speech of the Buddha, 
and as a perfect encapsulation of a particular text or teaching. Uh, second, Dharani's relic as none other than the body of the Buddha. And third, written Dharani as Dharani, or as you put it, the written spell as spell. Um, and here you're concerned primarily with the last of these three, uh, and you note that this last understanding and use of Dharani was the product of um, two strains of thought. First, Indic ideas about the power of, cha- of enchanted Dharani to empower objects, which c- could then be worn to positive effect. And second, what you term um, a family of Chinese practices involving the wearing of amulets, seals, medicines, and food talismans. Uh, and furthermore, that the Chinese influence is most evident in textual records, while the Indic influence is most visible in archaeological evidence. Um, so I was wondering if you could say a bit more about this and specifically focusing on the Chinese practices and traditions of which written Dharani become a part, because it seems that you're arguing that we have to understand these um, Chinese precedents, these practices of wearing these uh, magical objects in order to understand how the Dharani that you focus on in this book came to be used. Right. Um, well, I think you did a great job in summarizing <laughs> what, I, what I say in the book. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so one encounters the evidence, right? One one finds it in, in, in really in sort of two ways, right? Or two finds two sets of evidence. One is archaeological evidence, as you say. Mm-hmm. Including manuscripts, uh, paintings, etc., but also and especially um, amulets found in tombs. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the texts, right, and the, and the transmitted texts. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the kinds of things you get in in the Dharani Sutras, etc. And if you if you only looked as as other scholars had in the past, if you if, or if you looked primarily to the transmitted literature, the sutra literature. Mm-hmm. It's the Chinese versions of the sutras, of course, mm-hmm. of them, you would get the feeling, pretty, a pretty strong feeling, that something had happened, right? That maybe the stuff had been used in India and brought into China, but it had become very, you know, it had changed. And this one idea of how things happened, it had changed fundamentally, right? And it had mm-hmm. become something exactly like the kinds of uh, amulets and amuletic practices that one finds described, for example, in, in Gohong's Baopuzza, right? The master who embraces the unhewn or simplicity, however you want to translate that, or in a, a range of Taoist texts, right? Or in mm-hmm. a range of, uh, of other native, let's just call them native Chinese texts. Yeah. And in fact, some scholars had said that this stuff, the wearing of the Dharanese, mm-hmm. in these particular ways, it sounds a lot like what the Baopuza is talking about, yeah. which is insertions into the tradition, right? Some right. people argue that. But if you look at the tombs, mm-hmm. right, Chinese tombs, Chinese people in the tombs, as far as we know, mm. um, you look on there, you know, and it's the, the, the case with which I opened chapter uh, two, I think, mm-hmm. uh, of an, an armlet on the upper right arm of this corpse, and you... You open it up. Well, first you you notice that it's an armlet on the upper right arm of a corpse, mm-hmm. and then you you open and you look at the actual sheet that was rolled up uh, and inserted within the armlet. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you're thinking, "Wait a minute! I mean, this is very Indian, right? This is very mm-hmm. 
in dick, let's just say, right? Because it this because this type of uh, this positioning um, right. of the uh, amulet on the body is does not conform to Chinese precedent. And in fact, is exactly conforms exactly to all kinds of descriptions and uh, uh, material archaeological evidence that we have from from South Asia and Central Asia. Uh-huh. So, at the very least, you know, it, this was not on, on the uh, on the actual physical practice level a Chinese addition. I Nevertheless, see. you read the text, and there is a lot of echoing going on. There's a lot of, you know, let me just let me just be sloppy and talk about influence here, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of Chineseness going on in in the text, and so mm-hmm. I thought this is something that needs to be taken account of. Sure. Both of these things need to be taken account of, careful account of. So. I talk about how these various uh, images, that the language that is used for describing the wearing of these amulets in the Buddhist texts, mm-hmm. and I note that it's it comes right out of this old language of wearing seals, ministers wearing seals, ministers wearing the various emblems of state in China, mm-hmm. um, and how that was taken into Taoism as a as a lot of other things were, or into other native local Chinese practices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that the language of Dharani amulet, Chinese Dharani amulet practices is very much part of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so in chapter one, I basically, after I lay out this sort of, you know, three forms of Dharanis, mm-hmm. I just dig right into the Chinese stuff and I try to I get into this sort of Buddha, what's called Buddha Taoism sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a word, but, you know, a word that is used. Yes. Um, and I show how the amulet practices, at least in terms of the textual descriptions, is is very much in, a part of that world. And really, you can't understand it without understanding this larger world. Right? Mm-hmm. And when I had done the dissertation, that's as far as I went, really. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel confident in doing the archaeological stuff back then. I see. So that was a, an, ad, an addition later. Um, yeah. Okay. And then the uh, and I mean, how do you account for the this discrepancy between the um, the uh, the prescriptions and the descriptions in the texts being very much based on Chinese precedent, whereas the actual physical wearing is conforms more to uh, Indian practices? Well, I have no worked out theory exactly but it, it's sort of how things worked right it seems you can see mm-hmm. this pattern i think yeah um everywhere close enough to everywhere right in in uh tong etc chinese buddhist writings right they mm-hmm. write in terms of the language they know and in the book right i i at the end in the in the coda i sort of have a little Know, argue, an argument that I've been having with Bob Sharp in my head for a long time. You know, I sort of have it on paper a little bit, and you know, Bob talks about uh, ideas of cultural translation, and right, and it gives this kind of uh, um, I'm forgetting the philosopher's name, Gadamer, kind of a Gadamerian picture of 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 the uh, um, you know, the fusion of horizons and things like that in terms of thought, right, in terms mm-hmm. of language, and I, you know, I think that he's right to a certain extent about that stuff and that, you know, this is what we see in what's some, what's called the signification of Buddhism, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, endorse that idea completely, but it's a useful one. Mm-hmm. But people are doing what they're doing, right? You know? Right. Okay. Well, th- thank you for that. So then after um, chapters two and three are really the heart of the book. 
Um, Each chapter focuses on one particular written Dharani. In chapter two, your main focus is on the details of the practice of wearing Dharani, um, um, which is what you call adornment, as opposed to the other style of material Dharani use, uh, which you term uh, um, anointment. So you here you ask why Dharani, in this chapter, you ask why Dharani were supposed to be attached to this body part, with that article of clothing, and you ask how these practices were understood by Chinese during the last uh, few centuries of the first millennium. So in chapter two, you focus specifically on the incantation of wish fulfillment, Dharani, and the sutra in which it appears, the... Um, scripture of the Dharani spirit spell of great sovereignty preached by the Buddha, whereby one immediately attains what is sought, which right. is a wonderful title. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> uh, publishers wouldn't accept it nowadays. But, um, but before addressing the Chinese reception, interpretation, and use of this Dharani and Sutra, could you please explain for our listeners what the incantation of wish fulfillment is in terms of its uh, well, in terms of its place within the Buddhist textual corpus, but okay. Also, in terms of um, whom its intended audience was, and uh, according to a reading of the sutra itself. Right. Uh, well, the Mahapratisara, just to give a short title for it, right, mm-hmm. it means the great Pratisara, right? And Pratisara means um, ring, right, or armlet, mm-hmm. or by, extent, by extension, um, amulet, right? And in fact, a scholar who worked on, who did his dissertation on the Sanskrit uh, version of the text, simply translates it as the great amulet, right? Mm. Which um, is great, <laughs> which works <laughs> works perfectly uh, well for, for the translation of the title and for what, you know, in terms of the reception history of the work itself and, uh, and people carrying forward the things that are prescribed within it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's directed at you know, spoken by the Buddha, of course, it's a sutra. Um, like a Dharani, most Dharani sutras, incantation sutras, right? There's some, somebody presents a problem to the Buddha, right? Mm-hmm. And it's often uh, framed as, you know, Buddha, you are not going to be here forever, right? And in the future, mm-hmm. after you're dead for many, many, many years, you know, that sort of demonic infestations of the world are going to come back and are going to be all, people are just going to be in, terrible situations, right? And you're not going to be here to help them. And the Dharma will be faint by then, right? Mm. What are they going to do? And the Buddha says, well, that's a great, that's, you know, wow, that's a really good point. <laughs> um, and he, often what happens in incantation sutras is, or always, I guess, is he says, well, here's a spell that they can chant mm. um, and that this will protect them. Mm-hmm. So protect them, and sometimes this will help them to attain awakening on their own. But but very often, and especially in the material I look at in the book, it's for protection. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the Sutra of the Incantation of Wish Fulfillment, as I translate it, mm-hmm. um, is exactly one of these, right? But instead of prescribing some a, a string of syllables that one should speak, Mm. in situations, right? It says you should write them down and you should wear them on the body, right? Mm. And it gives, and it's not just you write the text down, but in fact you write a a small little mandala-looking diagram down, right? And in the Mm. middle there is an image. And that image changes depending on the person who is going to use it, right? So Mm. 
very often you have uh, the case of women who um, are worried about either can't have a child or are worried about difficult childbirth. Mm. And so I'm sorry, I'm not going to remember all the images right now, but they're in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you draw or have drawn the image in the center and then you draw this, you write the spell around it. Right. And then you, mm. then it doesn't really say much. It just says, then you wear it on the body. Mm. Um, and it gives, it, it doesn't give so many, some such clear distractions instructions about how or where to wear but it just simply says where sometimes it, it will say where on the arm or something mm-hmm. but then you look at the again the archaeological evidence and we have these various ways that people actually wore them on their arms or around their necks mm-hmm. um, which i found incredibly exciting because you know the dharani sutras perhaps especially are just filled with you know instructions for what to do do this do that do this do that 108 times do this a thousand times do this whatever times and we don't know if anybody ever did it right Mm -hmm. but in the case of these amulets we know exactly that they did it we know in some few cases exactly where they wore it on the body and how they wore it on the body right so it's just tremendously interesting and you have to remind me of what the question was now because i'm no no um uh, no, no, that's good. I was just uh, what, wanting to. I was basically asking about the incantation itself and the uh, sutra itself, uh, apart from the Chinese reception and use. But I think that more or less covers it. Well, one thing I would I would like to give a plug for other people's work. I was was very happy to find out it just at the end of my work on the book, basically after it was already at the press, mm-hmm. when I had discovered uh, this guy, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Gurgali Hidas, H-I-D-A-S, I had discovered his work, his dissertation on the Sanskrit version of the text, right, which was extremely helpful, and he mm. was very helpful. Mm. But I heard rumors, at, you know, when it was too late for me to do anything about it, that people were finding more of these uh, amulets and uh, Mahapratisara things in Southeast Asia, in oh, Indonesia wow. especially, but also in uh, the Philippines, very fascinatingly. Huh. You don't get a lot of Buddhist stuff in the Philippines, right? At least I don't know about it. Yeah. Um, and the recent issue, I think, of JIABS, right? The Journal mm-hmm. of the International Association of Buddhist Studies, for your listeners, Um if not the most recent one, a recent one has a has a lot of this work in it, and I haven't read it yet. All right. but I'm looking forward to it. Um, so, you know, I wish I was still working on this project. You know, then I could really get into better conversation with these scholars and uh, write a better book. But too late, too late for that now. Yeah. Well, for, for the next one. Um, well, that well, that's a good segue into the amulets themselves. Um, yeah. You you note that. Um, and maybe it's different now, but as of the writing of the book, you, you uh, note that there are 23 known amulets, and nine were handwritten, uh, three were part handwritten, part uh, xylograph, yeah. and 11 were xylographs. Yeah. The handwritten ones are earlier, xylographs are later. This now, is the three, yeah. Um, uh, and, yeah, and then uh, just for listeners, the book contains many il- illustrations and photographs of these amulets, so you'll have to... Unfortunately, on a podcast, we can't show those, but so you'll have to go get a copy and see for yourself. Um, but I was wondering if you could... The book because, has great pictures, whatever the rest of it is for. Yeah. <laughs> I, but in the book, you describe this... Um, uh, well, first, could you just... Well, you've already described the general design of the handwritten manuscripts, um, but could you also tell our listeners about this transition that you document... Yeah from the more donor-centered handwritten manuscripts 
to the less personalized, more contemplative xylographs, a shift that you say roughly corresponds to the uh, episodic iconic distinction, which um, I, I, I didn't know about. So I suspect many of our listeners might not know either. Well, this is pretty obscure material. And I think uh, people can not feel bad for not knowing about this. <laughs> um, right. The earliest manuscripts are manuscripts. Right? I mean, the earliest amulets are manuscripts. That is, they are handwritten. That's mm-hmm. what manuscript means, of course. Um, they don't, interestingly, they, they never, except in one possible case, they never match the, the sort of scriptural prescriptions exactly, right? Or mm-hmm. In fact, they're rarely even very close to them. But in general terms, they, they do follow it, right? There's an image, and then there's the spell, and then around the outer edge of these sheets, there are uh, drawn, in the early cases, um, various ritual implements, right? Mm-hmm. And in some cases, these ritual implements... Um, you know, vajras or lamps or things like that are they're well, they're on fire, right? They they have a halo of flame around them, mm. and that I take to mean I take to be a sign that they were considered to be, or that that they were that they were marked as uh, active, right? They are ritually mm. active. They are they are powerful objects, mm-hmm. and. In the center, in the image in the center, you'll have uh, usually a Vajra wearing. A Vajra, you know, initially is this large club, right? A weapon mm-hmm. becomes smaller and much more stylized as uh, the history of Buddhism goes on. But in, in these cases, they're still pretty, you know, what was it Bam Bam who had the club, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> clubs, right? Or things like that. Mm. And that Vajra holder, Vajra wielder, this this deity, this spirit, right, has his, or in one case perhaps her, hand out and is either touching or is held over the head of a human figure who is kneeling with palms together facing the deity, right? Mm-hmm. And that, we know because sometimes labeled as such, right, is the person who was to wear the amulet. Mm. And so... They're very personalized in that way, right? You have your picture in the center where you are being um, blessed, let's just say, by the deity. Mm-hmm. Um, also, in the spell, going in the central uh, ring of the of the, the sheet, there are were spaces left in the later printed ones, or just seem seamlessly written into the manuscript ones. The name of the bearer of the amulet, right? Mm-hmm. Madam Wei, in one case, the one on the cover of the book, mm-hmm. or Jing Satai, there's a whole, there are a whole bunch of them. They have their names actually in there. So you have a picture of Madam Wei in the middle, you have her name written into the spell, and that, that corresponds to the places in the spell um, where it, it's sort of your name here, right? You know, where mm-hmm. I, you know, this, uh, the powers of the spell will go to Madam Wei, right? Or to Jing Satai, or to whomever. Mm-hmm. And then we have on the edge, these images of the ritual implements sort of coruscating with power, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are all markings, in my view, right, that this was uh, an object alive with potency, right, with power. And so when you're wearing it, you know, it's, it's marked as something that is just powerful and you can, you know, potentially feel it, who knows. Mm-hmm. The later ones, and let me, I'll come back to the, the sort of transitional period, which are the most interesting in many ways, but the later ones... Um, were all block printed, all xylographed, right? Mm-hmm. 
And in those cases, in the central image, they don't have uh, this personalized image. Um, they almost all, there are exceptions, but they almost always have uh, an iconic picture of, of a bodhisattva, multi-armed bodhisattva, which has been identified by art historians, not by me, as, um, <laughs> as Mahapratisamara, the, the bodhisattva of, this, of, the, of the great amulet. Mm. In, sometimes in, in the printed ones, on the, uh, in the spell, there were spaces left for names. Sometimes the names are written and sometimes they're not. Um, we, this is common, actually, across, I don't want to say fully across Asia, but there are examples of it from elsewhere in Asia and Buddhist Asia, um, you know, where spells were written out, name spaces were left. A scholar told me once, I never got to see this thing, but, you know, I certainly have no reason to not believe it. Mm-hmm. In, in an interesting case, they didn't leave very much space for the name, but the person had a very long name. And so the name sort of written, you know, loops up into the margins and, and not into the margins, I'm sorry, the space between the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a very common uh, practice through across uh, Asia, and we see it um, We see it as well in, in China. So, um, I'm sorry, but the iconic... Um, versus uh, episodic one. I, you know, I, this is a, a, a dyad, I, analytical dyad I borrowed from Wu Hong, my uh, colleague here at Chicago, and Buzzy Tizer, my, my graduate advisor, also used it, as did uh, Victor Mayer, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that is on the way I use it is in these early personalized ones, we are actually witnessing the blessing of the recipient, right? It's a kind of an, a ritual episode, mm-hmm. right? In the other ones, the late ones, we don't. Mm-hmm. If the if there's an image of the donor there, he's off to the side, you know, like in paintings. Mm-hmm. He's not part of the action, right? Mm. And so that's a, I take that as a kind of an iconic image, again, borrowing from these other guys. Mm-hmm. But take it or leave it. I, 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 I found it helpful. I hope, uh, I hope others do. But switching now, just briefly, if I can have time. Please. The middle, the transitional version. And here... The term xylograph is not exactly the right term because a xylograph, you know, full real block printing, right? You have the block with the, with the words on it. You place the sheet on top with you know, this ink, of course, on the block. Mm-hmm. And then you very carefully rub the sheet, right, with some kind of a tool. And so that the printing happens very evenly mm. across the page. Um, we know, and this was, I'm borrowing the observations of some Chinese scholars, that in some of these what I think of as the transitional uh, objects, <laughs> not that kind of transitional object, mm-hmm. it's um, they were stamped, right? Mm. They have been stamped on rather than truly xylographed on. How do we know that? Well, the ink is very uneven, right? Mm-hmm. And faint in some cases. And that's what happens when you stamp things, you know, again and again and again, right? If you're not doing it as carefully as you would with a xylograph. So this connects, at least in, I, I try to point to connections um, with work that's been done in the history of printing, the origins of printing in China. And I would, you know, anyone listening to this, I would certainly recommend the work of Timothy Barrett, mm-hmm. great scholar, um, done uh, some just fascinating work, as has Jean-Pierre Drege, um in Paris on the uh, origins of printing um, mm-hmm. and these kinds of practices. And Tim Barrett has, has drawn some very tight connections with seals and stamping practices to printing and i you know i was very excited in the book i know i haven't heard back if people buy it or not yet Mm -hmm. Uh, but i try to point out that in one case 
you know, I found, I found, I found a picture of this uh, Dharani stamp from Kashmir. That's a, a sort of rectangular shape, and then you find on this one particular um, amulet sheet from China, uh, the the spell was stamped in four with four different stamps around the central image, using a stamp that was obviously something like the same size as that. This Kashmir stamp is a different spell, not the same stamp, but mm. sort of makes you wonder, you know, maybe yeah. we do have uh, a kind of historical connection here between these uh, Indic Dharani stamps, of which mm-hmm. there are many. Many have been found. This, this Chinese uh, stamped amulet and, you know, mm-hmm. print. Who knows? Yeah. So a possible sort of technological link there, too. Right. I was very excited about that. Okay. So, um, before we run out of time, I also wanted to just um, turn to the because in uh, the what we've been talking about the incantation of wish fulfillment is an example of what you call uh, adornment, where people actually wear these dharani. Now, the other type of material dharani practice that you discuss is anointment, yeah. and for that, the you uh, focus on the incantation of the glory of the Buddha's crown or incantation yeah. of glory. I think you abbreviate it. Yeah. Um, so. Could now this was um, usually um, inscribed on a Dharani pillar, if I remember correctly, or on banners sometimes. Um, but Dharani pillars do figure um, centrally in this chapter. So, um, sure. could you just explain uh, what Dharani pillars are and what's their importance in your in your study? Yeah. Um, if I could just back up for a mm-hmm. second intro sure. by talking about this very briefly, this uh, adornment versus anointment thing. Mm-hmm. These are my terms, of course. I got, when you look at the oldest uh, that we have anyway, um, at least in Chinese translation, and they tend to be the oldest, um, Buddhist spell ritual manuals, right? And they talk about how, how are you going to enchant a body, right? A body that's sick, that's having a toothache, that has whatever physical ailment, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they say you take the spell and you write it on something and then you wrap it uh, along a, in a cord that you wear on the arm, right? Or you mm-hmm. otherwise wear it. Or they say you enchant some medium like oil or ash and then you rub that oil or ash into the body, right? In a kind of anointment or unction or mm-hmm. infusion kind of uh, thing. And so I... I noticed that, and I say, well, these, you know, which initially were just two different ways you could use any one spell, right? Mm-hmm. They, at least in the case of the two Dharanis I talk about in the book, they seem to have taken over, right? Where, where wearing Dharanis has sort of taken over this uh, pratisada practice, and infusion, infusing or anointing has sort of taken over this Ushnishavijaya uh, uh, or Tsunsung um, spell practices. Mm-hmm. And so in the the scripture for the uh, incantation of glory, as I call it, the Ushnishivajaya Dharani, um, very popular throughout East Asia, really. Um, in the text, it says you should write it on a, write it many places, but among those places, you write it on a on a tuang, right, which is a banner initially, mm-hmm. a kind of a tubular banner. And you can go into Chinese temples today, and you know you look up over uh, in one of the ritual spaces, and there'll be these tubular banners with stuff written on them. And you ask, as I have, you know, ask the priest, <laughs> what are those things up there, by the way? And they'll say, oh, that's a jingchuang. And that is exactly the term that's used for uh, what's often in English called a dharani pillar. Jing, scripture, chuang, banner, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or sometimes these pillars... 
you know, they kind of look like these tubular banners, right? I, I have right. no idea how this transition happened, except to say that it, it did. Mm. Uh, so we have evidence of these stone posts, really, octog- octagonal initially, um, very simple initially, from the early 8th century, the oldest ones. There could have been older ones. We don't know. Um, and they just, initially, they just had the spell written on it. Mm-hmm. And in, this follows, you know, in later versions, when they would have uh, uh, colophons written onto them, um, you know, and it would exactly say how they were supposed to work, and they echo the descriptions found in the scripture, which goes something like, um, you write it on this banner, right, or on this pillar, mm-hmm. and then you put it someplace people can either see it on a high hill, Mm-hmm. Or someplace where they're going to walk by it, and at a crossroads, especially. Mm. And then, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, if the wind off the banner bl- blows onto you, or dust off the banner blows onto you, or most kind of interestingly, if the shadow of the banner, because somehow shadow is a substance, not just the absence of light, mm. shadow comes onto you, then you will get all the good mojo, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea, with a lot of help from from imperial, uh, a lot of imperial help, let's just say, mm-hmm. uh, becomes very popular in mm. the time, immensely popular. We get them everywhere. And if you once you know to look for these things, if you're traveling around, you know, China looking at Buddhist sites, you will just see them everywhere, mm. everywhere. Um, and they were made not only in the Tang and but all the way, you know, into the Ming certainly and, and later, although not as often as before. Um, so it's an, initially a very simple stone post carved with a spell. Then they would add the two main stories associated with the spell, um, this, how the Buddha taught the spell and, and how the spell came into China. These would also be added to the posts. And then as time goes by, you know, they, they become much more architectural. They start to look like pagodas, really, mm-hmm. um, you know, with little roof top uh roof uh, like structures on them and sometimes they get hugely large right i mean there's a famous one in yunnan that you can go see that has just a lot of text and images on it. it's clearly not just a donny pillar anymore mm-hmm. it's sort of you know uh, a record of the local buddhist imaginaire in many ways mm-hmm. so that's what they are in uh, roughly anyway right and so the um this uh, just to, I think this is a quote from the incantation itself. You say if you if you uh, from and from your book, if you draw near the pillar, or if the pillar's shadow infuses you, or if wind off the pillars blows your body, or if dust blown off the pillar attaches to you, your sinful karma will be destroyed. So it's sort of an encapsulation of the idea there. Is and is that, and that idea was um, fa- found in other texts or primarily here. Well, in different forms. I mean, in once it, forms, right. if you sort of uh, head to a little higher level of abstraction and just talk, just look for um, what you might call uh, infusion of, of the Dharma, right? You know, mm-hmm. Physical infusion of the Dharma. You know, you get everything from that story I told about the ant drowning right. to, you know, the, the texts are always talking about the Dharma rains falling, you know, or, yeah. or uh, you know, I give some other examples in the, mm-hmm. in the book things that connect with it right okay well so let's um i just wanted to before um just mention chapter four uh while we still have time in which you explain the way in which forms of dharani practice that preceded the development of a systematized high esoteric buddhism have been interpreted teleologically as a sort of proto-tantra or an earlier crude form of what would later develop into esoteric buddhism proper 
And this view seems to have been particularly strong in Japanese scholarship and and was accepted and repeated by Western scholars, I suppose. Um, and here, as earlier in the book, we talked about this a little bit, you argue that although there are uh, connections between these two traditions or strains of thought and practice, uh, they were also they were also separate and the type of Dadani practice and the views of Dadani that you focus on this book um, I, did not come to an end with the flowering of high esoteric Buddhism yeah. um, in the eighth century. Your primary piece of evidence here is a work by the 10th century monk uh, Zaning. Yeah. Um, and, um, and uh, so I was wondering if you could just, this seems to be one of the sort of central um larger implications of your book for this sort of more generalized study of medieval Chinese Buddhism. But what could you please explain um, the origins of this idea that this sort of uh, earlier set of Dharani practices was simply a crude form of esoteric esoteric Buddhism? Buddhism was simply a result of later Japanese scholarship? Or is this view already visible within pre-modern high esoteric Buddhist traditions, uh, sort of descriptions of their own, of themselves? Um, sure. Two, I guess there's two ways I, I would talk to that, right? One, to take the last part, is sure. I mean, the, the what I call the high traditions of esoteric Buddhism, right? Meaning, you know, the things that were going on uh, that were popular at the Tang dynastic court and in the great uh, you know, really huge monasteries of the capitals that were heavily um, connected with the court and people like Amogavadra, etc., what they were doing, you know, they saw, as best as I can understand it, they certainly saw their tradition as being the flowering, right, mm-hmm. of these earlier uh, roots or seeds, to call them that. I mean, that, that's what traditions do, right? You look back, you want to talk, you want to understand where your tradition comes from, you look back in history with the future in mind, right? Your future, mm-hmm. your glorious future in mm-hmm. mind. Right? <laughs> and you look back and you, every, and you sort of uh, swallow up, you know, the various things that did, of course, in fact, uh, feed into it, right? Mm. So, yes, yeah, certainly they, they did see it that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm not uh, would not claim to be an expert on the Japanese side of all this, but here I really, as I say in the book, you know, I, I, following uh, some of the conclusions of um, uh, Ryuichi Abe and mm-hmm. Bob Scharf again. Yes. Um, so, but now backing up, when I when I when I was in graduate school, mm-hmm. this was a big, at least for me and for you know some of the people I was talking to, this was a big argument that was going on then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what was esoteric Buddhism in China? Or was there esoteric Buddhism in China? Right. And there were all kind of fights going on about it. And I was really just not contributing to it, you know, but I was sort of in the middle of it, right, in my mm-hmm. own mind. Because I, I was working on Dadanese and I was picking sides and then changing sides and then I didn't know what I was thinking. And um, and in the last chapter of the book is, is how I wanted to sort of make my peace uh-huh. that uh, – you know, with the, the the old esoteric Buddhism wars, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> my, of my grad school days. Um, and that's simply to say, yes, of course there was esoteric Buddhism in China. I mean, I certainly want to affirm that in the book. And I think yeah. that the art, the picture I give makes no sense if there wasn't, mm-hmm. right? But I do want to say that if you look, if you center the analysis not in the sort of transmitted ritual literature that came out of these 
you know, really stunning figures like Amogavadra or mm. Kukai in Japan, etc. Mm. If you don't look to them primarily, primarily, but you, you know, you head out into the countryside a little bit and you look in tombs, right? And you, or you look at Dunhuang material, or you look at Dharani pillars, you know, lonely Dharani pillars on the windswept countryside. You just get a very different picture, and it looks like these older practices, these older ideas, just never went away. I mean. Mm. So there is this idea that uh, esoteric Buddhism kind of sub- erased everything that came before it, swallowed it into itself, mm-hmm. and it did to you know to to the extent that it did, but not fully. And mm-hmm. this other stuff is just fascinating, and it's an important part of Chinese religious history, I would say. And and in the book, I try to give it its due to the extent that I can. Mm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so. Um, <laughs> As a last question, I just want to ask if there's anything that you're uh, working on now um, besides taking a rest after um, <laughs> after this book. Yeah, I'm I've, I'm sort of all in on Dunhuang. I've become fascinated by uh, Dunhuang manuscripts, and not only Dun, Dunhuang but Turfan. Um, I'm really trying to uh, become a paleographer. Uh, Mm. Trying to learn from, you know, I have these great models here at Chicago and my senior colleagues, uh, Don Harper and Ed Shaughnessy, mm-hmm. who are just tremendously skilled paleographers uh, of earlier periods. So Don also does Dun Huang. Mm. So I'm working on that, uh, trying to, specific project, book project is trying to recover to the extent that it's possible to practice worlds of these um, local Dunhuang area ritualists whose uh, practices, in some extent, centered on the making and use of Buddhist talismanic seals. So, seals were sort of a back burner thing in the first book, and now they're really the what the, the new book is all about. Hmm. So that's what I'm doing now. Right. Well, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us today, and to the listeners, I'll look forward to um, seeing you on our next episode. <laughs>